0: Our second scripture lesson comes from Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 25. Hear now the word of the Lord. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If, however, you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit, and what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not subject to the law. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I am warning you as I have warned you before. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But by contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. This, too, is the word of God for the people of God. When Ronald Reagan left the White House, he he slipped a simple note into the desk for the man who would occupy that office next. When George H.W. Bush sat in the Oval for the first time, he found that little note which read, Don't let the turkeys get you down. H.W. then wrote to Bill Clinton, "'Your success now is our country's success. "'I am rooting hard for you.'" And then Clinton wrote to the younger Bush, "'You lead a proud, decent, good people, "'and from this day you are president of all of us. "'I salute you and wish you success and much happiness.'" George W. Bush then wrote to Barack Obama, "'There will be trying moments, "'but you will have an almighty God to comfort you, a family who loves you, and a country that is pulling for you, including me. Though they may have come from different political parties with different ideologies, each one of the letters that they left for each other reflected deep amounts of respect and support because at least in part, each of those men knew that very few others would really know what it was like to be the President of the United States. It's a pretty small club, And so when you have a chance to speak to your successor as you make your exit, of course, it should be in the spirit of encouragement and trust. They are taking up a mantle and carrying on the legacy of your country. When Elisha knew that Elijah would be leaving, his first reaction was panic. How could he be the prophet of the Lord in the same way that Elijah had been? If he was going to do his job effectively, he thought he would need a double portion of Elijah's spirit, which was quite a lot to ask for. And even then, Elijah couldn't promise Elisha that he would receive it. All he could hope for was a little spark of whatever it was that Elijah had. It was a pretty scary prospect. And yet, when Elijah was carried up into heaven, Elisha tore his clothes in mourning And then he took up his predecessor's mantle, he put it on, and he went on his way, doing the work to which the Lord had called him, faithfully knowing that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. When Paul is writing to the church in Galatia, he finds himself in a similar predicament. He is trying to live into and teach in a world that no longer has Jesus in it. Jesus had given particular jobs, commands to be followed, all continuing the work that he had begun before his death. What kind of life do you lead now that the one you have been following is gone? So Paul is trying to guide his readers into a life of the Spirit so that they may be able to live a life reflecting the one who called them. The fruits of the Spirit are, without a doubt, one of the most well-known sections of scripture there is. I know that growing up, all of my Sunday school classrooms and our youth room had some sort of poster with a bunch of fruit on it with the fruits of the Spirit also listed on them. In fact, I'm not sure I've ever attended or worked in a church that didn't have some sort of visual representation of the fruits of the Spirit. And Morningside is no exception, but I've gotta say I think ours are cooler than most of the ones I've seen. The prevalence of the fruits of the Spirit, particularly for our children and our youth, I think, is due to the idea that these qualities are, char- these are qualities are characteristics that all Christians should exhibit or should strive to exhibit, right? It is pretty simple packaging. Give folks the fruits of the Spirit and the Ten Commandments, and their Christi- Christian education is basically complete. Obey your parents. Control yourselves. Don't steal or lie. Be more gentle, respect God, be super generous. That covers all the bases, right? Except that we know that Christianity cannot be reduced to a simple list of do's and don'ts. It would make my job a lot easier and a lot less interesting if it were. We are not followers of Jesus based on what we do, based on a list of good qualities. In fact, Paul spends a lot of his time in Galatians and in many of his other letters on this. Paul urges his readers, these first churches, to put aside the law. The legal code that had governed the lives of, lives of Jews basically from the beginning is, according to Paul, no longer necessary and indeed also a hindrance to their lives in Christ. Paul goes to great lengths to express the need for freedom from the law. The first verse of chapter 5 of Galatians says, For Christ has set us free. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. It is not news for me to say that we, humanity, were bound to the powers of sin and death until, in a radical move of love and grace, Jesus chose to die, defeating the powers that held us captive freeing us. In Romans, Paul says that humanity were slaves to sin. And so, for Paul, after this world-changing event, continuing to subject oneself to the law is basically returning oneself to the yoke of slavery. We are freed from sin and death, and also freed from the shalls and shants of the law. So then, of course, the question that remains is, what do you do with the freedom that Christ has given you? What comes next? you've been freed. Humanity is free to do whatever it would like, I suppose, is one answer. You can choose to follow whichever path uh, you would like, make whatever decisions you would like, act on whatever impulse is, because freedom means that you don't have to answer to anyone. That, of course, isn't the case either. Freedom in Christ does not mean anything goes. Freedom, when we talk about it, from a theological perspective does not mean this American concept of individuality or autonomy or self-determination. Grace may be this get-out-of-jail-free card, but it doesn't mean that we're not held accountable for what we do once we're out. Freedom in this sense is not about freedom from obligation, but instead considers to whom the obligation is owed. So in one sense, the obligation is to Christ, but practically it is to one another. Like verse 14 says, for the whole law is summed up in a single commandment, you shall love your neighbors as yourself. Paul understands that all human beings are free in some sense and enslaved in another sense. The question is from what or whom are they freed and to whom or what are they enslaved. In Galatians, he urges freedom from the law But that same freedom carries with it enslavement to Christ as the liberator and also to others who belong to Christ. And being a slave to anything sounds really bad. No one wants to be subject to the rule of another. And yet we have been freed into the hands of a master who is infinitely greater than sin and death. We are freed into the hands of someone who loves us. I had a New Testament professor who explained to my class this concept by teaching us about SNH green stamps, which were um, the stamps that you would receive from a checkout counter at supermarkets or department stores or gas stations. Um, and then you would put them in a, catal- uh, in a booklet and then you could redeem them for products from a catalog. So when Dr. Clifton Black was a little boy, his parents gave him this book to put stamps in and he waited patiently collecting his stamps for the day he would be able to redeem those stamps for a new toy. And finally, he had enough stamps to get the thing that he'd been waiting for, a giant stuffed tiger. And Clifton had loved the tiger from the moment he saw it. And finally, this tiger could be his. He gave the stamps to his mother, who turned them in, and then gave Clifton his tiger. The tiger was freed from whatever store or warehouse he had been in, and now he lived with Clifton. And he boasted proudly, this is my Tiger. And Dr. Black made a point to tell my classmates and I that he had redeemed the stamps for the tiger. He had freed the tiger, but he did not set the tiger loose. He did not free him and leave him on the side of the road. The tiger now belonged to him, and he loved that tiger and he treated him well. In the same way, Dr. Black told us, we have been redeemed into the hands of Jesus Christ, but we are not our own tigers. We are now gods. Because Jesus Christ is not the founder of a new religion or a teacher of new moral truths, Jesus Christ is a new way of being human, and we are under new ownership. Our freedom means that we are beholden to this new way of life. It is not a list of rules or step-by-step instructions, but rather The freedom to love our God fully and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. For you were were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. And that is where the fruits of the Spirit come in. Paul, he sets up the fruits of the Spirit in contrast to the works of the flesh. Spirit versus flesh also sort of feeds into this do versus don't or good versus bad dichotomy. Do these things and you're good, or if you do these other things, you're bad. But I don't think that that's a fair assessment of Galatians, because this isn't a question of holiness versus sinfulness, nor is it about choosing between abstinence and indulgence. Paul is presenting a choice between selfishness and selflessness. Love is motivated by the well-being of others. The flesh is motivated only by my own well-being. A life lived in the freedom of Christ is marked by love and concern for the other, while a life on the outside of that freedom is marked with selfishness. Now, I feel like it's important for me to make something clear here. This passage from Galatians, specifically when it talks about the works of the flesh, has been and still is used by some to make some very strong claims about what kind of uh, behavior is acceptable. People will use this passage as fodder to suggest that some kind of slippery slope exists, that if we aren't careful with our freedom, we will fall into behaviors from which we cannot return. It is easy to use this passage to become legalistic and make claims about how people abuse their freedom. It has particularly been used against our LGBT brothers and sisters, Um, that is to say that being LGBT or being affirming of the LGBT community falls into this anything goes mentality that is somehow inherently bad. And let me say this in the clearest language I can, that is a lie. Not only is it cruel and untrue, to use scripture to make such a claim, but it also flies directly in the face of what Paul is saying. We are freed, my friends, for love and to be subject to one another. And in so doing, we decisively declare that the fruit of the Spirit is love, and that love between two people is not and is never a sin. Anything or anyone who suggests otherwise is not, in fact, in line with the freedom that we have been given. Our life in Christ means that we are, in fact, free, but freedom does not always mean what we think it means. We are called to freedom, and so we have to consider what we are going to do with that. You can say whatever you like. You can treat people however you want. You can do what feels good over what is right. Fine, but that is not freedom, not really We are freed into love and free to love, but love itself is bondage. To love someone is to not allow them to suffer and to treat them with compassion and kindness and grace. When you love someone, you don't have the freedom to sit idly by while they're harmed. Look at the world around us. Where have we shirked our bondage to love? In what ways have we declared our freedom to the detriment of our neighbors? Have we allowed suffering to continue so that we could exercise the other kind of freedom? If we are free, then, the spirit of freedom ought to stir us into action, stir us into love and joy, peace and patience, kindness and generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Amen.